Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have the honor of having Steve and Sarah Carter as our guests. Steve and Sarah live in Phoenix with their two kids, where it's much warmer than it is in Chicago right now. I'm assuming it's so cold. Um, Steve, on your website, you write that over the last two decades, you've been discovering what it means to be a pastor. And I thought that would be a great place to start. If you guys could tell us a little bit about what you've learned about pastoring, about church culture. We just love to hear more from you about some of the things that you've learned over the years. Definitely, definitely. Well, thanks so much, uh, Laura and Scott, for for having us. Uh, we've actually never yeah. done a podcast together, First time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, it will. So, uh, you know, you're going to get to see where all the ideas actually come from. <laughs> it's from her. Um, but um, you know, for for twenty some years, we've had the privilege to kind of bounce between the Midwest and the West Coast. And out of college, I was given um, an amazing opportunity to go to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, We were still dating at the time, but to be an intern um, at a little upstart church called Mars Hill Bible Church and uh, get to live in Rob Bell's basement. And um, I got to see a church that had no signs outside its building. I got to see a church explode overnight. I got to see how Rob really... began a church with the book of Leviticus and got to see how he was uh, studying and really in, in many ways uh, trying to bring a, a message um, and be a real prophet to a conservative culture. And I saw just um, this church explode young people. Um, and then we, we left um, in 2009 to return back to the, to the West coast. And, um, I, I had realized, um, I really wanted to kind of, the reason I had gone to, to West Michigan, cause Rob invited me. He said that, Hey, I was speaking to someone and he told me that Jesus didn't change the world by having disciples. He changed the world by speaking to the masses. He changed the world by having disciples. Mm-hmm. I asked him, who, who are you pouring your life into? And Rob and his wife prayed and somehow our names came up and he called me from the Grand Rapids airport and said, hey, Steve, graduate as fast as you can. Come live in my basement. I'll teach you everything I know. And let's change the world one West Michigan at a time. And (laughs) I always thought we wouldn't stay forever in Grand Rapids, but I would learn and then go try and take um, the historic Jewish roots, the idea of the kingdom of God, um, some of the beautiful why that I learned at Mars Hill. Um, it was not a leadership culture. It was not a a culture on how to do things in efficient ways. It was a startup that grew overnight and around profoundly gifted communicators. So in 2009, we went to Southern California. Sarah and I were married at this time, and we had had our first Emerson. And I went to a church that was uh, where we where we attended in college mm-hmm. called Rock Harbor. And Rock Harbor was really um, started... Um, out of Mariner's Church um, by a couple of high school leaders, pastors, and it really was um, a really beautiful, beautiful church. My, I, I, I had an internship there in college, and my first day 
was going to be with the teaching pastor. And this was before I went to, to Marshall and was on staff there. Um, but the, the, the senior pastor started founding pastor had had an affair. Mm-hmm. And I, that was my first day of interning there. And I, I was going to intern with him. And I, uh, I, I thought, I guess my internship's done, but the team kept me and they had a whole teaching team. And I got to sit in and I watched um, this real, this worship pastor step into a, the lead pastor role. And basically the teaching was they'd go around this circle of seven of us and basically said, okay, we feel like we got to teach on humility. And then they'd say, who's modeling it? Who's living humility best? It might be a better communicator. It was just the person who was actually living it. And so I that was really formative. And the elders were a lot of John Wimber disciples. And so Wimber obviously founded the uh, Vineyard Movement. And so I feel like I and we really began this understanding of the Holy Spirit. And so I always say that Mars Hill taught me a compelling why, but Rock Harbor taught me a compelling how. Um, just in how the Holy Spirit works and worship and response and openness. And, and we were leading um, and, in Fullerton and it was, it was beautiful. And when I was at Mars Hill, I had met um, uh, Bill Heibel's son-in-law and, and daughter, and they had become good friends um, when we were on staff at Mars Hill together. And Bill kind of became kind of a, a mentor from afar. And in 2012, uh, he invited us to join the the Willow staff. And I'd never been in a leadership culture. Um, I, he, he obviously was someone that was very revered and respected and um, and the opportunity to to kind of join the, the faculty, um, to be a teaching uh, pastor, to uh, be a director of evangelism. I mean, it, in many ways, it, it was uh, a really exciting opportunity and um, and I love the Midwest. And, and so uh, we jumped in there. And in many ways, I feel like I learned uh, what, um, because of the resources, what you're able to accomplish, um, the, the, the ability of leadership and how, you know, you could dream up an idea like, hey, we want to pack prison packs for every incarcerated person in Illinois. And it was possible because of the efficiency of that machine. And so I think part of our journey has been learning from some some amazing faces, each of them for better and for worse, um, but a compelling why, compelling how, and a picture of what can happen. And over the last two years, now we feel like we're in the desert trying to kind of make sense of and heal from um, our experience um, at Willow and um, just trying to kind of learn. And so that's kind of what I, I don't know if there's more that you'd add to it, but that's kind of been our journey. That's a good recap our lifetime. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> what you met in, uh, in college? We did. Yeah. Uh, was it San Diego? Was it San Diego? No, it was uh, Hope International University. Hope, Hope International. Yeah. yeah exactly. Cause I know Mike, um, those, those were the, he often talked about you too. You, you guys went to college with him, didn't you? We did. So Mike, Mike was um, a year ahead of me, but we, we were always kind of in the same homiletics or preaching Bible, biblical studies. Yeah. Uh, but he, I mean, he took a, a senior pastor role in Long Beach at Parkrest Church. It was a great yeah. church. And, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, he, he's a good, he's a good man. I was actually with him yesterday, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but he's, uh, he's not pastoring now. He's uh, 
getting bigger in, in, in a good way, not in a bad way. He's yep. uh, uh, got a different vision of, of, of his ministry. I, I, have a, I have a question, Sarah. In all this, um, in all this uh, move, I mean, you were with some, you were some big people. Now I don't know if at um, at Mariners and Rock Harbor, uh, I, I knew Spencer Burke. I think he was out there somehow. Was he? Was he Spencer was the leading the leading elder? So he came with with Keith and the team, and so and then um, he ended up stepping away. Um, you know, while I was at Mars Hill. So I think yeah. that do what he was up to more in post-modernity. Yeah. And, uh, but then with Rob Bell, and you were there at the beginning when that church exploded with no, um, probably it'd be fair to say with no infrastructure. Yeah. Um, it just exploded into people coming to hear Rob Bell talk about Leviticus and put goats on the stage and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, <laughs> The first, the first time I, I showed up, I got turned away by a fire marshal. Yeah. Second time, I got turned away by a fire marshal. I had to sneak in the third week and to church <laughs> to listen to a guy talk about Leviticus 9. You know, like, it just I was like, what is going on in here? Yeah. <laughs> it, there was no infrastructure. The first month, there was 3,000 people there. Yeah. So, yeah. It was wildfire. Yeah. Well, so you, you, were, you were with uh, Rob Bell and... Um, and you saw uh, the heights of that ministry. You were at Willow Creek probably after the heights, but it was still extremely successful. And Sarah, um, from your angle, what, what did you see about Rob, about participating in a church like that, about Bill Hybels and all the famous leaders connected to Willow? What are some things that you saw that you can take away and help people say this is this is what ministry is really like. Um, you know, that, is that a good question for you? Yeah, I mean, I think you know we potentially. I don't know if this is unique in, to us or if this is you know I think less traditional in the um, pastor pastor's wife together serving, yeah. um, and we kind of just run parallel to each other. So I would say. Um, I stayed away from a lot of the uh, staff kind of structure, um, day-to-day work probably that you were a part of in the ministries, the churches you were a part of. Um, and so my interactions were outside of that kind of formal or professional realm. Um, so they were fewer and farther between, um, but they were also more casual, it would be like mm-hmm. a dinner or, um, you know, some kind of an outing. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't a daily connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sarah, when I, when I went to college and seminary, pastor's wives had a role model. They were piano players. Mm-hmm. They uh, were, were big on hospitality for the pastors and the church. And this role model has really changed. And I think it's healthy. Um, and really, in, in my experience, the first church that I was involved in where I knew the pastor's wife was distant from everything going on was at Willow Creek. So mm-hmm. that's not that long ago for me, though I knew I knew of the role. I heard other people whose, whose wives 
they went to church, but they just didn't like being involved with all the stuff. And they didn't lead the Bible studies and they didn't, you know, um, was it was it difficult for you? I mean, maybe because you were at Mars Hill and it was so creative and at Willow Creek because it was so big and Lynn had already established that. Was it a challenge for you? Did you feel, say, guilty for not being involved? Uh, did you get critiqued for not being involved? You know, yeah. what, what was that like? It's a good question. Um, and I would say, I mean, across the board, kind of just from every end of the spectrum. So definitely, yes, there were definitely, I think, interactions with people who would have liked me to have been more hands-on and involved. Um, and then also people who really were, you know, good for you for not, you know, leading a ministry. And I think on both sides of that, um, I often felt misunderstood. Um, mm-hmm. I think, like I said, I think our ministry or our life is run so parallel but mine is less uh, labeled. So um, I think, you know, in my different spheres in both of those communities specifically, um, you know, it was, it was less formal and more uh, kind of organic and relational, the ways that I would connect with community and people and serve. Um, And so sometimes that was complicated and sometimes that was lonely um, a lot of it, I felt like I had to kind of, um, find my own way or, or it didn't exist. So I had to, to make it. Um, but it was also a challenge I really enjoyed and, and probably thrived better because of it than I would have had I been expected to fulfill kind of a traditional pastor's wife role. Yeah. is probably some of the biggest tension was us having to manage and negotiate that, you know, yeah. I, early on, I brought into the marriage, like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a middle school pastor. Like you're going to, you're going to be there with me. And Sarah's like, yeah, you're a middle school pastor. Um, I work at a bank. You wouldn't come to all of my. Like hang out hang at out. my job. Yeah. And, and I think, but I, I, I had seen us do this parallel track and she made me stronger. Her ideas were so helpful that I just wanted more time. And I was like, come lead, come be a volunteer, come. And she's like, that's actually going to drain me. And yeah. I think part of what I had to grow in is, oh, do I force her to do my thing or do I actually empower her to be who God made her to be? Yeah. And, and honestly, I think, I think a lot of times people can say that they're egalitarian until it comes at a cost of what they're having to do. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden they're like, well, you're, you're not complimenting my calling. Yeah, complementarianism comes out. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. That's yeah. And so I think that was the piece where we had to really negotiate that. And I think I had to actually come to what do I really believe? And I saw this model. My the home church I grew up in with the lead vocalist. Um, you know, you don't want Sarah I singing. You don't want that's 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 what we saw. And so but that's she uh, has been in Fullerton, especially when we were at Rock Harbor, she started serving in the art gallery and using her art. She was reaching a whole group of people that I, they weren't coming to listen to me, but they were coming to hang out with her. And she was leading like art and prayer and discernment exercises with canvases and painting. And there was like breakthrough happening, but that wasn't on a, a, a 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. It was mm-hmm. Friday night in downtown Fullerton. So mm-hmm. we, started to see, wow, this kingdom is bigger. Mm-hmm. And 
how can we actually play in it and see that we're on the same team and encourage each other to find our, our callings and sweet spots and not you know that. Um, I saw this when I first started teaching. I taught at a school whose name will go unmentioned, but its initials are Ted's. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the wives felt that they their jobs were sort of support their husbands and they were around the campus a lot. Chris was like, nah, I'm a psychologist. I'm doing this. And over time, I've seen this. Like at North Park, I didn't see that many spouses. And at Northern, I mean, we see almost none. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's it's a very inter- interesting statement that you made. That That's an indicator of egalitarianism and complementarianism, is that when the spouse feels their responsibility is to just sort of support what the other person is doing, to say the pastor or the professor. That's really good. Okay, now here's a difficult question. Um, I don't think it's difficult myself because we've talked about this, but um, you saw a lot of things at these two churches with Rob Bell. You know, Rob is not ministering the way he was. And I wonder if there are things you saw there that you said, I don't want to go in that direction. I'm not asking you to criticize um, things about uh, Bill Hybels that you said, I wish I'd have, I could have seen this sooner. Uh, what are some things we can learn from these two examples? Uh, you know, I'm a seminary professor. I, I got nervous quite often about things Rob Bell was teaching. I got more nervous about things Bill Hybels did not teach because his theology, I thought, was pretty basic 101, and that was it. Um, But what are some things you learned in in a sort of negative way? You say, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. I I want to chart a different path. Is that fair? That's that's, that's definitely fair. Um, So here's the crazy piece is my friends will say that I left Mars Hill when the stock was at the all-time high. So I left, I left 18 months before Love Wins came out. Oh, wow. The piece, the piece that I have to tell you is the day that I resigned from, from Willow, um, I turned my phone off and we, we drove to Madison, Wisconsin, because we, we didn't know who was going to show up at our house, you know. And probably at like 1030, I turned my phone on. And as I turned it on, the Apple sign comes on, then it shows the home screen. Within two seconds, the phone rings, and it was Rob. And he was in Argentina or Brazil, and someone had told him, hey, Steve just left. And I'll tell you what, um, do we agree with everything theologically? No. There's probably not a, uh, a better um, person in my life who has called me, who has shown up in my life, who has just um, been present. Um, and ask me hard questions um, than Rob. So he and I have, have really kept that relationship. While I was at Willow, while I was at Rock Harbor, um, he is a, he's just someone who has just been super kind to me. So, so I, what I think was what's interesting about the Mars Hill story is it, it grew overnight. And the, the piece was it was built around a supernatural spiritual gift of communication. 
And it was speaking to an ache that West Michigan was feeling. West Michigan, when I moved there, I mean, most of the people didn't do anything on Sundays. I mean, there was there was a lot yeah. of Christian reform kind of over. Repressed. Yeah, it was a lot of repression mm-hmm. over that area. And Rob just brought something different. So, but what I didn't see was the structure. And what's interesting is the the everyone probably had this low grade fear. Someday Rob's going to leave. And what's amazing is Rob was at Mars Hill probably more than Bill was at Willow and and regarding time. But the fear of the people was he's going to leave. The fear of the people of Willow wasn't that Bill was ever going to leave because the perception was this is the most important thing to Bill. To Rob, the church was one of the important things, but it wasn't the most important thing. So I really discovered perception. I, I learned a lot about nuance at Mars Hill. Um, a lot of questions that we asked. Um, I think sometimes we could have given more answers. But I would just say, for me, um, I didn't leave Mars with any angst. Um, and Rob's just been really, really good. The The, the Willow piece was was really unique because uh, you, you know Scott you and I talk about sports all the time I I didn't go to Willow thinking that Bill was going to be a father figure or that Bill was going to be a friend I wanted that what I thought I was going to experience was someone like Nick Saban um you know the head coach of the University of Alabama like this is a guy who makes you better and you go and you you get to win championships and you get the chance to be on that stage, to be on that field, to get to get to be around this kind of organization. So what I what I saw was someone who actually coached me. I mean, I've got a thousand great stories of my time at Willow, um, interactions with Bill that he made me better, and I've got a, a dozen to two dozen two dozen wounds. Um, and I think what ended up being really for me was, and this whole desert has been something of untangling, the spiritual act of untangling what I thought was true that was actually a lie. Mm. What I was told that about myself that was supposedly true in the eyes of Willow or leadership, which was actually a lie. Mm. Um, Having to negotiate that and realizing my desire to learn and my loyalty to an institution or an organiz- or a person um, got in the way at times. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. We're watching culturally something around Christian nationalism. And when we're watching this up close is we're seeing what happens when people put God or, or put country before God. And um, there's a lot of tenets to it. I also think that there is something that's happened in the boomer generation within the megachurch called what I'm just refer to as Christian institutionalism, where we've put the institution or the organization above the ethics, the values, the kingdom, the reality of Christ and, and the truth of God. And, and say this phrase. Okay. Here's uh, you brought some up. This is really big to me right now. Uh, you brought up Christian nationalism. Okay. Okay. So let me just give a, a, a brief summary. 
uh, and both of you are old enough to have experienced some of it. I don't know how old you are, but in the 1980s, evangelicalism fell for Ronald Reagan. And evangelical leaders, Jerry Falwell, James Dobson, James Kennedy, Francis Schaeffer, those are four major figures at this time. They committed to, let's just use Trump's language, make America great again by making it more Christian. For 40 years, the evangelical church has grown in its perception of its power, whether it's true or not, its perception of its power to influence elections and, and therefore to use that power to change America. I want to say that in those 40 years, pastors did not disciple the church theopolitically. Now, what I mean by that is give them a politics that is kingdom-oriented and shaped by God rather than by nation. So for 40 years, the evangelical movement has been theopolitically corrupted, and it has just made a mess of itself, and it is less influential today than it was during the time of Ronald Reagan. It's worse. What, what mistakes, I don't know how much of that story you heard, you saw, you witnessed. Uh, where did we make mistakes? What can we do today to disciple the church theopolitically so that we have both a prophetic stance that is not, let's say, totally partisanized? Is it? Is that enough to get you in trouble, to get me in trouble? I love that you're asking the question. It's such an important question. I mean, it's the conversation to be having right now, in my opinion, just for so many, so many of us Jesus followers. Absolutely. Come on. Yeah. No, I'm not, no, 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 no. I'm going to follow your lead. I don't want to get anyone in any trouble. No, <laughs> want, we won't get anybody in trouble. We want you to get us in trouble. Yes. <laughs> we got to hear this. Come on. No, I'm not. I just, yes, I agree. And I think it's been, I mean, the, the height right now that I think if we're talking just specifically about our nation, about the United yeah, States of America, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> the pressure to pick a side, the, um, the kind of fine-tuned narrowing down to one or two issues that define an entire religion, an entire faith, an entire belief system at this point, I think on both sides, it's gotten yep. so dangerous because it's made the line so narrow that to even try to have a dialogue or a conversation, there's there's tripwires all over it. And you stumble on one and it's you're just written off or they're yeah. written off for you. You know, I think we've lost the art of of having that dialogue without having an agenda. I think so yeah. much of the message has been um, it's our job to you can kick me if I'm to be too no, it's our it. job to um, to like rescue people for Jesus. So how we're gonna do that is in these three ways. Um, and I think what's happened is there's a lot that you can um, rationalize and justify when the motivation is, but I'm doing it for this reason. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's true in this conversation. We've been, you know, it's, it's true in conversations we've been having about our experience at Willow. 
Um, I think in big circles and small circles, there's a lot that can be justified if you give people a reason that, that seems worthy. Can I, can I just jump back and talk about Jerry Falwell for one second, the Uh-oh. senior. And, and I, I just want to, I want people to understand this, especially those that are listening. There was no internet. There was, there was no, there was no, like, I have a mailing, like an email list. I mean, this is, this is how people get New York Times bestsellers. People trade their mailing lists, right? There was none of that. So what Jerry Falwell did was he was on the road and he would say, he basically created online schooling by saying, hey, if you want more of our teachings from Liberty, sign up for this list. And he, he started sending tapes of his teachings and he began to disciple a whole group of people and he built a list of over a half a million names. Jerry Falwell did? Jerry Falwell did. So this guy was on the plane. He was going that crazy. And, and what I want you to hear though is all of a sudden when someone would then make an attack on Israel, there's some kind of peace movement. Jerry then had the radio stations and you had focus on the family, and all of a sudden you could just get on that that radio station and say, "Hey, the president's going to make this decision," and five hundred thousand people would start calling this number. They had created this flywheel. They created online schooling or you know video yeah. team, and but it was all for that list. I just think that there is something about that that I just have to give credit to because there was no structure. They built that yeah. up. But then what I think we saw, and Sarah just named it so beautifully, is, again, there were certain cultural decisions that were being agreed upon. Uh, We're against these ethical issues. Hmm. We are against this. We are against this. We are for this. We are for this. And it rallied a base. And then all of a sudden, the church began to follow suit. You're seeing the, the, the political power to get people elected. Well, pastors started to realize if I say something different, then that person mm-hmm. is now going to go to a different church and I'm going to lose bills or I'm going to lose butts and seats. Mm-hmm. And then there was this negotiation that was happening. And so you're right. We did not uh, in a, in a healthy way, disciple our people to a more kingdom vision or the churches that did cease to be influential in the larger spectrum. Mm-hmm. Those pastors didn't have mega churches. They weren't getting opportunities to get conferences. So uh, there was this moment where you had to get to a certain level of influence, 10,000 or more, and then you could blow it all up. Then you could really speak your mind and you could really tell. But then all of a sudden there was a mass exodus out. So, so what I think what's happened is you, the, the pastors recognized the cost benefit. If I speak about this, I lose people. But by not speaking about it, some other voices began to be elevated as the disciple makers and shaping and forming people's theopolitical views for not better. And that became the news outlets. And the news outlets, whether radio, talk radio, whether certain syndicates began to recognize, now we can take Falwell's idea of building a mailing list to a whole nother level with the internet, with um, now people can purchase products. People will be ambassadors. People will be buying this. People will be logged on. They will be the voices. And, and the church just got smaller and smaller in 
actually shaping people's perspectives. And these anchors or these news voices or these talk show hosts became the voice of reason. And we gave that to them. Well, well, there's a lot, there's a lot to think through there. The, um, you know, I, I lived this conversation. I was a part, I mean, in a sense, I, I watched it. I was there. Uh, I was not very politically involved, but the, the influence of Dobson and that new book by Kristen Kovas Dumay, um, the influence of Dobson, James Kennedy, I think, was the original power, along with Jerry Falwell. They both had TV shows, too. Yeah, that's right. Their church services were on and everybody was listening to them. Um, and they were both very, very politically engaged in a partisan way, fighting for against abortion, fighting, you know, all these these narrow issues. And I'm not going to minimize abortion, but fighting for certain issues became the sign of whether you were a Christian. I remember when my daughter went to Wheaton. Um, had to be in the late 90s. And she said uh, that in one of her classes, uh, the teacher went around and asked every student what party you, who, you know, like who they would vote for. Wow. And Laura, uh, I had no idea, uh, said she voted Democrat. And there were like two out of 35 students in the class who were Democrats. Wow. And she said one of the students asked if she was a Christian. Mm-hmm. That right there, that's what happened is that the partisan side became the Christian side and Christians lost their witness. That's the way I put it. They, but I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm writing right now in this, in this area of developing a theopolitical discipleship. What are the themes that we need to reassert? But I had a pastor write me yesterday because I was sharing some of this with him. He said, I'd lose my job if I preached these themes. That is scary to me right there. That is the scary thing. Oh, but, yeah. but here's so here's the, the biggest piece. So when I when I was when we were at Mars Hill, we we uh we bought our first house in Ottawa Hills. I loved the house. I called my youth pastor, uh, who was just a really important mentor in my life, and he just I'll never forget what he said. He said, Hey, congratulations, but just know this. Um, most pastors when they buy their house, first house or their second home. They lose their prophetic voice because now they have something to lose. And don't let having a house be something that stops you from pointing and saying what needs to be said. And that's that's what Hal was in my life. He he just would speak this on a regular basis. But that that marked me. And I think what's happened is pastors have to negotiate. They're negotiating. Oh man, am I gonna am I gonna make this person frustrated? And how would say Steve? Two realities to be a pastor: one, you're gonna always be somebody's heretic, and two, you're not gonna make everybody happy. So if you be somebody's heretic and you can recognize your job's not to please everyone, your job is to live with integrity, to pastor people in the kingdom of God, then go for it. If not, get another job. Get another job. And I, yeah. And, I think I think what happens is with politics, we 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 tried to, to nuance or we tried to not talk about it or not signal anything. Um, when it came to 
the 10% in the church that was unhealthy. We didn't want to talk about it. We saw narcissism in the church. We didn't want to talk about it um, because there's so much good. There's so much good. Why, why get in the way of all the good? And again, you could look at Jerry and you go, man, this guy's preaching the Bible. He's out against abortion. He's, he's, he's doing stuff for, for all the right reasons. And like Sarah said, when you start attaching God to it, it gets so kind of complicated. And sometimes you're like, well, they're on the road, they're preaching, they're doing all this good stuff. But unfortunately, if we don't have a healthy kingdom ethic um, when it comes to politics, when it comes to life, when it comes to church culture, when it comes to discipleship, we're forfeiting that voice to someone else, and someone else will take it. That's right. Yeah. I remember when I went to do my PhD in England. Um, one of my one of my uh, graduate school classmates said, "There are no Republicans in England." <laughs> That's pretty. They're all social democrats, you know. That's what what Europe. Denmark said the same thing. You know, they said we don't. We think. I remember one of a, a, gay, a guy in Denmark said to me, "Obama and uh, McCain are for us the same po- political party." And this is so important to understand. We're so Americanized. We think that the whole world revolves around our our viewpoint. So, well, this is uh, there's so much good to talk about here. Uh, I don't know what what Laura has in mind here, but I think. We've taken up more than the normal time. <laughs> yeah, I, I really appreciate so much of this conversation. And one of the things that I've been just coming back to is this idea for pastors being tempted then, if their jobs are at risk, to sand off the rough edges of the gospel. Because I think Jesus said things that were political. Um, that we would interpret as political, things that would challenge some of our basic assumptions about who we are, because we think we're pretty nice people. Um, and But when we sand off those rough edges, we're not challenging our people to reflect on where they are and to assess things honestly. Um, and that's one of the things I keep coming back to is um, the need to be honest with ourselves and with the people that we're charged with caring for and for teaching. Um, if we're not telling them the truth, if we're not asking them to ask themselves hard questions, we're not really doing our jobs. Um, so I, I so appreciate that piece of this conversation. So I thank you guys for bringing those things up, for being willing to go there and to share with us some of your experience over the years. You guys have been in a lot of really fascinating settings. Yeah. Yeah. God's really given you some opportunities. So I appreciate learning from you. So thank you. Um, As we close our time together, I just want to let you all know, our listeners, that we appreciate you being here and being part of this conversation as well. And we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thanks so much.